This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we go international and look at the growing protest movement in Iran, sparked by the brutal murder of Masa Amini in police custody for wearing a loose hijab or headscarf. The protests have spread across the country and world with women chopping off their hair in solidarity and protest. The Islamic regime has violently cracked down on protesters, but have failed to quell the movement. This is the biggest challenge the Islamic government has faced in 43 years of theocratic rule. And I've invited Iranian scholar and activist Yasmin Mather to join us with her view of the protest movement, the regime's response, and what it may mean for continued theocratic rule in Iran. We then turn to Brazil to discuss the October 2nd presidential election results with Brazilian political economist Pedro Paulo Zalud Bastos. Lula won the first round but failed to eliminate Jair Bolsonaro, the current president often called Brazil's Trump. The second and final round of the election will be held on October 30th, and we get Pedro Paulo's analysis of the geographical, social, political, religious, and racial divisions, as well as his assessment of the second round to come. All this when our program returns in just a moment. But first, listeners, please take note and write this down. I'm excited to announce that I'm creating an online companion to this podcast where you'll find regularly updated articles and interviews of mine. It's going to be packed with info that you'll love, and it will be free. Please email me at beneaththesurfacekpfk at gmail.com, and I'll put you on the mailing list. Again, send your email address to beneaththesurfacekpfk, all one word, at gmail.com. And now we turn to Yasmin Mather and the ongoing protest movement in Iran. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Pleased to be welcoming back Yasmin Mather. We're going to be looking at the protest movement in Iran, which began about a month ago and has only grown despite a brutal response from the Islamic regime. These protests began after Masa Amini was murdered in police custody after being arrested for wearing a loose hijab. The Protests have gone global with women publicly cutting their hair in solidarity and protest. Yasmin Mather, an Iranian scholar and chair of Hopi, which uh, means hands off the people of Iran, writes that the protests are not just about the hijab, but a woman's right to choose what she does in every aspect of her life after 43 years of political and religious oppression. She joins us with a larger view of this protest movement, the regime's response, and what it means for the continued theocratic rule in Iran. So, Yasmin, welcome to the show. Let me just introduce you properly. Yasmin Mather is an Iranian scholar and political activist. She's, as I mentioned, the chair of Hopi, Hands Off the People of Iran. She's also the acting editor of Critique, a journal of socialist theory and disclosure. I'm also one of the editors. And she's associated with the Middle East Center at Oxford University, where she's also a scientific developer at Advanced Research Computing. She's written several articles on the recent protests in Weekly Worker. You can find it online and released a very powerful statement. And after I read that, I knew we had to talk about it. So, Yasmin, welcome. Now, what I'd like you to do is to maybe set the stage for us in what seems like 
either a throwback to an earlier time or maybe a last gasp for the Iranian theocracy, the government has used lethal force in its latest crackdown of nationwide demonstration. The New York Times on Saturday reports a massacre in Zahedan, I may not have pronounced that right, where security forces fired indiscriminately into the crowd, killing somewhere between 66 and 96 people in what is now being called Bloody Friday. This follows, as I said earlier, a month of the growing protests after the murder of Masa Amini in police custody. And demonstrators are now, as you say in one of your articles, calling for the end of the Islamic Republic's rule. The other thing that in the New York Times today said that this massacre in Zahedin has been blacked out of the news. But after the killings of Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the crowds by them, rather, the crowds killed six members of uh, of the security forces in street clashes. So this is just one aspect of what's going on. But you've written this very strong statement condemning the violence and analyzing the protest movement. Maybe we should just begin there and then we can talk perhaps also about this protest movement in comparison to other ones that have surged in various times during this regime. So please maybe set the stage for us. Okay, this protest, I think, came at a time when there was a lot of dissatisfaction in the country. The nuclear talks, the talks between Iran and various Western powers and Russia and China had come to a standstill. This has direct effect on people's daily lives in that the cost of living is very high. People are aware of absolutely widespread corruption in the country. The gap between the rich and the poor is everywhere, I know, but in Iran, it's one of the highest, even in terms of its neighbors, where you look at countries like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, pretty awful places, but the Gini factor in Iran is even higher than that. And of course, add to this 43 and almost 44 years, where women have been treated as second-class citizens, where Iran is different from Taliban and Afghanistan, so the government hasn't stopped higher education, partly because of what it sees as its position in the global capitalist world, but also because it was more difficult given urbanization, given the longer-term involvement of women in society prior to 79. So women were allowed higher education, education and higher education, but this didn't mean that the form of apartheid, the form of second-class citizenship for women was taken away. Women didn't find employment after finishing university higher education, women found it very difficult to maintain permanent posts. They were on contract jobs. So in a country where there is lack of employment security, women were at the bottom of the ranks, basically. But also, if you look at the effects of sanctions in Iran, those in power have become richer and more powerful as a result of sanctions. This is well documented. We know how these people have used sanctions to create their own black market. They've created 
distribution for basic food and goods and so on at prices that ordinary people find very difficult to cope with. And here again, women are suffering more than men because at the end of the day, it's the women who have to deal with feeding the family. Very few households are free of this task for women. And it was inevitable that a spark that was the unfortunate death of Masa Amini sparked this fire that is really growing every day. I thought it would last two weeks. Most people thought it might last three weeks. We are now entering the fifth week. And it's not going down, it's growing every day. And of course, there have been similar protests. There have been bigger protests, maybe in 2009 and so on. But I think what is different this time is the spread of these protests and the fact that it has really gone beyond the normal circles. So everybody finds their way of joining the protest. So if you're unemployed, you're joining it to express your grievance. If you're a worker, like the workers in petrochemical industry or the workers in the steel factory in Ahvaz the last week, you join it because your salaries haven't been paid, your firm has been privatised, all sorts of other reasons. So all in all, it's becoming a very unpredictable set of protests, uprising, you could call it. I wouldn't call it a revolution, but uprisings. Well, that's really interesting. And you said that the workers are joining in and there's been some strikes as well, and that this protest movement has gone the length and breadth of the country in areas that previously didn't really join in. So it seems to be a very widespread protest. And then the other thing is that it's gone international. And I think that's really important. You see these memes of women chopping off their locks in solidarity with women in Iran. And and there's been, of course, sympathy protests or solidarity before, but nothing like this, I think. And especially in Europe, where you're seeing massive demonstrations supporting women in Iran, but it's more than just women. So I, I really would like to get you to talk a little bit more about this movement, because some articles say it's Gen Z, you know, it's the younger generation that has grown up long past the time of, let's say, any revolutionary fervor for the Islamic regime, and that social media has allowed them to see what people their age all around the world are like, and they don't want any part of this regime. But is it just that? Is it just young people not wanting to be held back by the reactionary regime? Or I'd like to hear your assessment of this broader movement and who else you mentioned the workers. But maybe just, you know, start there. Okay, I think we have to admit that the younger generation have been very prominent. If you like, they've been the first on the streets, the school students, uh, university students. But it's not just them. And regarding the young, you could say, of course, if you talk to them, if you listen to what they're saying, they are very clear this is a generation that is well aware of what is happening globally. And of course, you could say the same is true of the older generation. I mean, it's not like the 30-year-old didn't know what the world was happening. But these people have it on their phones. So they're, if you like, 
connected more to what is going on globally. And here, a dictatorship normally has the wisdom to stay away from people's <laughs> private lives. I mean, this is what we have, for example, under the Shah. The Shah's regime was a dictatorship, but it was very clear that the government didn't interfere in the private lives of people, in fact, turned a complete blind eye to whatever people did, because that's how you survive. The Islamic Republic has made the serious mistake for its own survival, where it is a dictatorship, it is repressive, it's a neoliberal capitalist system, so it exploits workers more than most other countries, it is corrupt, And then it wants to interfere in what people wear, what they drink, where they go. Can young men and women or men and women in general mix in a social gathering? So it's not just the young who are upset about this. I think the 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, even the 50-year-olds find it an unnecessary interference in their daily life. That's why, although it's true to say that, for example, school students have been very braver than older women, but you see women with headscarf walking with the protesters and saying, I want to keep my headscarf, but I defend the right of others to not wear a hijab, which is fair enough, you know. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And, and you see older women joining these protests saying, I wish I had done something about it 20 years ago. Let me just ask you, Yasmin Mather, because, you know, we've seen protests before in Iran and significantly after someone is killed, there were the 2009 protests, there were 2019 protests that were part of the worldwide protests against austerity and neoliberalism. And every time in Iran, it looks like that's going to be the end of the regime. And then it never is. And the other surprising part about it is, as you say, this regime does not try to concede in a way that even the Shah did. They up the ante against women and others who will not conform to the dictates of the law. There have been some articles about how Ali Khamenei is on his last legs. He's sick. He's old. He's been in power for more than 30 years, I think. I don't know exactly how many it is. You can tell us. And yet the response of the regime has been exactly the same, if not worse. And I think in your statement or in one of your articles, you also say that it's not all women. Some women who are very pro-regime, in fact, are the ones who beat up other women and brutally so. So maybe you could, before we go into that one, I'd like to get your assessment of the regime's response. Is crackdown the only thing they know to do? And is it a way of saying the Islamic regime is not over and we refuse to bend? How do you see it? And, and what divisions are there within the ruling groups? Very important questions. We have to remember two things. One is that the Islamic Republic has many different forces for repression, and it hasn't used all of them. So it has Basij, which is supposedly a militia-type force. It has the Revolutionary Guards. Some people say Revolutionary Guards haven't been fully deployed against the civilian population. It also has the what is called the religious police, 
which is being very prominent in these events. One thing that is clear is that some people within these organizations are now beginning to doubt, and this is the first, right? So I can't tell you what percentage, but there is enough evidence to see that, for example, a lot of stories about revolutionary guards asking on the internet, on social media, is my pension secure if the regime changes? And this is the first time these people have actually concerned about the fact that maybe their provider doesn't survive. Yeah? There are examples, as the government keeps saying, of security forces being taken prisoner, beaten up, and in a number of occasions, at least that's what the government is saying, killed by the protesters. So in that level, we are seeing a very high level of tension in the country. And that high level of tension has created divisions amongst the rulers. The reformist faction, I mean, this is a false name because I can't really consider someone who supports the Islamic Republic as reformist, but the reformist faction is saying, oh, maybe we really shouldn't bother about the headscarf. It's not important. Let's go back to the nuclear talks and solve the economic situation and so on. So there are some divisions. There are a couple of senior ayatollahs in Rome, religious people in Rome, who have said there is nothing in the Quran about the hijab. It's a voluntary decision to wear it. And so on. So you can see there are divisions. However, as you rightly point out, this Islamic regime has a life of, I don't know, it really is difficult to get rid of this government. It has a lot of people who are paid directly to suppress others, and therefore it can at times rely on them, and it will rely on them. Clearly, some of them are in doubt now, but you can't say you've solved the problem. And one thing is clear, the government's attempt to say, oh, this is U.S. plot or it's a Western plot, doesn't really work out when people are in their street and see who is going on the demonstration. A lot of women who are on the demonstration say, my father died for the Iran-Iraq war. My brother was in the past Iran. And I don't think they are lying. I mean, from what I can gather, they're genuinely people from that background. So it is difficult for the government to say this is just a plot or something. And I think the international support, when it, especially when it's come from women, genuinely cutting their hair, going on protests, it is helpful. But remember, this isn't a government that worries about <laughs> its public opinion outside its borders. It's not a normal state as such. What about the other thing you mentioned earlier, and this is in part of the larger debate about the effectiveness of sanctions, which seems to be the only tool that the West uses short of a military option, which is not really something that's desirable because of the effects of that. But the sanctions you said have enriched the powerful. And so they haven't done what they're intended to do. And the only thing that we see is ever more tough sanctions being proposed. And this generally affects the population more than the leadership. So 
what about that? And is there some, I don't know if you can tell the, our audience this, Yasemin, but is there some indication that people are tired of the corruption or the fact that they see how well their leaders live compared to them, for example, or you know how tired they are of facing not just the dictates of the regime on a daily basis, but also the bureaucracy of the regime and trying to negotiate a way to live. Yeah, the sanctions that have been put on Iran are very long term. So if you like, some of them started in 1979. Then there was some more in 2000, 2007, 2014. Every decade there's been more and more. So the regime has learned to live with sanctions, right? And also it has allies. So it has allies in Russia. It has allies North Korea, I know North Korea can't give much to anybody, but in terms of military or nuclear facilities, it can help other countries. So sanctions have been used by the government as an excuse, right? So every financial issue, non-payment of wages, the fact that prices are going up every day is blamed on sanctions. The reality is it's not just sanctions. And at times, it's not even sanctions that have created the economic problems of the Islamic Republic. The Islamic Republic follows every rule that the IMF tells it regarding privatization. So the last big protests in Iran were because the government ended subsidies for fuel. Mm. And the IMF then praised the government for ending the subsidies. However, this blaming the sanctions is a very good tool. You say, oh, no, it's not our fault. It's because of sanctions. The other thing Mm. it does is it rallies support for the government. So the government has this ability of using the foreign enemy, not just sanctions, but the foreign enemy, to rally its own forces. And that's very good for it and damaging to protesters. So we should be wary of those uh, dangers, if you like. One thing that you said, Yasemin, which I found interesting, and that is, of course, on everybody's minds, is the closer relationship between Iran and Russia, especially as Putin has become a complete pariah in the world, now even being criticized by India and China. And so he moves closer to Iran. And I think in one of your articles, you hint at the level of collusion in a sense, and that Putin in some way is a role model and hero of dictatorships. And we should also say there's some relationship with Saudi Arabia too. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about that part. Yeah, I think for some people in the developing world, in the emerging economies, as I keep calling them, Putin has become a bit of a role model. And this also, of course, coincides with decline in US together with this phenomena. And the way people look at it, is two ways. One is that it's beneficial for Iran to have this relationship with Putin. But the other thing is that some people inside Iran are remarking that, if you like, the fact that Putin invaded Ukraine is kind of encouraged countries like Iran to be tougher, rougher, if you like, more dictatorial. And that's a very bad sign, especially for those forces on the left who have illusions about 
Russia and its role in the global economy, global <laughs> world, and so on. What are we talking about here? Are we saying it's a good thing that dictatorships are emboldened by the Putin war? There are other issues that Iran and the Russian forces are involved. Iran did provide Russia with drones. And there are two sets of debates. I'm not sure which one is true because I'm not a military, I don't know the military fact. But some people say they were completely useless. They didn't work for Russia. And others are saying, no, they were very useful and so on. So the debate is there. I read both sides and I don't know. But the fact that Iran did provide these weapons is no doubt. There's also the last factor is this new military commander that Putin has put in charge of war in Ukraine. He has a background of Syria that he's, um, if you like, right. he's claimed to fame. And there he had relations with Iranian senior revolutionary guards who were in, on the same side. And that's another nasty piece of collaboration, if you like. Well, finally, we could probably talk a lot more. I'm glad of everything that you have to say on this. But Yasmin, maybe we could just say, because I think the one thing we have to say is that these protests are the biggest yet, in a sense, or the most threatening yet. And of course, I can't ask you if you think that the regime will topple, but do you think that there's any possibility of of a way out for them, you know, an off-ramp for them to stop the protests and restore some form of orderliness, I guess, in Iran? Very difficult to say, because on the one hand, you have to remember that there isn't a clear leadership in this. There are good reasons why there isn't a clear leadership, but there is also the disadvantage that no one sees a potential alternative. And of course, some of the alternatives proposed by US or Saudi Arabia are just so such ill repute that it won't do any good, but they won't succeed unless someone does something like military invasion or some kind of military intervention. With that, the left is weak, the left is divided, the left is confused in the, globally, but also inside Iran, it's even more confused, I would say, than anywhere else. So it's very difficult to see how... Some of the left slogans that the left and the working class are taking to these protests can take ground. In those circumstances, the state is in a difficult position. Their problem, and that's a good situation to be, their problem is they can't back down now. They've put their foot down. They've said we're against these protests. These protests are apparently all the work of US, you know, and Israel or somebody else. They've put their foot down. They can't retreat. So that's, in a way, is a, a cul-de-sac, is an impasse. Whether some factions within the regime will force it to make compromises is a possibility. And unfortunately, that will lengthen the life of the government. But on the other hand, it's very difficult to see that the spontaneous movement develops within its own ranks a revolutionary radical alternative. 
Yasmin Mather, we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for your insights and this overview of this protest movement, the divisions within the regime, and I guess prospects in a sense, as much as we can say what they are. Yasmin is an Iranian scholar, a political activist. She's the chair of Hopi, Hands Off the People of Iran, and she's also the acting editor of Critique and associated with the Middle East Center and Oxford University and a bunch of other things, too. But you can look up her two articles at Weekly Worker and the statement. Yes, and where was the statement published on uh, Iranian protests and repression? Okay, we are still gathering signatures, but I have sent it to a number of U.S. websites. I hope they will publish it. If not, we'll send it. We just publish it on Herpes website. Great. And we'll certainly uh, let the listeners know about that. I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting Thank you. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Pedro Paulo Zaluz Bastos back with us. The first round of the presidential elections in Brazil was held on October 2nd. Bolsonaro, the Brazilian Trumpist, as we say shorthand, who's part of the global so-called authoritarian populist extreme right, managed to avoid being ejected from power outright, as many thought would be the case, because his chief contender was Lula, the still very popular leader of the PT or Workers' Party, who had been jailed to prevent him from running in the 2018 election. Lula won the first round on October 2nd, but not outright. He came in with 48.4% to Bolsonaro's 43.2% of the vote. And Pedro Paolo will tell us much more. But it shows the level of polarization despite Bolsonaro's disastrous rule, especially on his handling of COVID and destruction of the rainforest and so much more. I've invited Pedro Paulo Zaluz Bastos back with us to analyze these results, to assess the political divides in Brazil, the character of support for each of the candidates and the prospects in the second round, which will be held on October 30th. We'll also ask Pedro Paulo about where Brazil sits now in an increasingly left-moving continent with leftist governments being elected from Colombia to Chile. So welcome back, Pedro Paulo. Thanks for having me, Susie. Always a pleasure. And let me properly introduce you. You're a political economist who writes astutely and widely on the economy and politics of Brazil. Pedro Paolo is an associate professor at the Institute of Economics at Unicamp, which is the university just outside Sao Paulo. And he was a visiting professor at UC Berkeley. Was it 2019 or 2017-18? Oh, my God. Time flies. 2017, 2018. And he's now working on a book project about Bolsonaro. And we'll certainly uh, talk more about that as that project develops and is published. So welcome back to the show. And let's maybe just begin with your overall assessment of the first round, and then we'll go into all the particulars. Yes, Susie. Well, as you mentioned, Lula got 57.3 million votes. And Bolsonaro, 51.1 million votes. And in terms of valid votes, it means net of abstentions, null and blank votes, Lula got 48.4%. But the fact voters were 123 million voters. 
in terms of the, the proportion of the electorate, the eligible voter poll, which is 156.5 million, Lula got 36.6%, Bolsonaro got 32.64%. So Lula got much less than it was expected because the polls gave 46 for Lula when it comes to the to total votes, proportion of the total votes, and that a net of null and blank votes would give Lula a victory in the first round. He would get more than 50% of the, the valid votes. But actually, Lula got 9% less than it was expected. And Bolsonaro basically confirmed his, his voter intention with 33% or less, suggesting that Lula lost many intended votes through abstention, probably because most of Lula voters are much poorer and less educated than Bolsonaro. And the first round, you have to vote for, for many candidates. And there are a lot of voters that uh, have moved and haven't registered the new place of, of living. And also there are problems related with cost of transportation. and so. Lula got an underwhelming vote tally than it was expected. Were right? you surprised by that? Yes, yes, I was surprised by that. It, and that's also very concerned to the second round because if the, the abstention rate of the Lula expected intended votes are as high as this, basically the election nowadays is almost a draw. Although the polls are giving Lula more or less 8% lead in terms of valid votes. Yeah. <laughs> well, polls are polls. And we were all thinking that, you know, Lula was going to win outright, and he didn't. So before we go into your ideas and projections about what could happen, let's talk a little bit about the support for each of them. So how you assess or evaluate, maybe we'll start with Lula, but then move to Bolsonaro or vice versa. But I want to get at okay. some sense of, and really in that, let's just say the analysis I'm thinking about would be in terms of the geographic, class, racial, and even religious yeah. support for each. So go ahead, Pedro Paulo. Okay. In terms of geographical areas, Lula <laughs> got more votes in poorer and big metropolitan areas. And especially he's got his higher victory margins in the northeast of Brazil, it's the poorest region in Brazil, and also in the Amazon forest, especially indigenous and maroons people's lands, which is very, very poor also. While Bolsonaro got his higher victory margins in the uh, deforestation arc around the Amazon forest and the Cerrado forest, where illegal logging, cattle ranching and mining is done in public conservation areas and indigenous and Maroos people's lands. But also Bolsonaro got a lot of, of votes in, in rich and agribusiness areas in mid-sized towns. So Lula got more votes in, in poor areas and very small towns and big metropolitan areas and state capitals. Generally, Bolsonaro got less votes in 2022 in the region that he won in 2018, except for the deforestation arc. But on the other hand, he got more votes in the Northeast, where he lost to Lula with higher margins. Then in 2018, of course, he lost in both elections in Northeast, but it has to do with the monetary ECPAND, the emergency ECPAND 
called uh, Auxilio Brasil that he, he got raised just two months before the election. And when it comes to social class, something that is very interesting to, to pinpoint is that there is almost perfect correlation of 99% of votes in Lula and Bolsonaro in Brazilian cities, which means that the runoff was kind of anticipated in the first round. I mean, the, the, the place where Lula has more votes are the places where Bolsonaro has less votes and vice versa, with an almost perfect inverse correlation, negative correlation, right? And Lula basically wins nowadays when, when it comes to the opinion polls for the, the second round, the runoff. He's still winning more or less like eight points and especially wins in the poorest income brackets, like 65 to 28, the least educated, 62 against 32 welfare recipients, 59 to 37 women, 53 to 40 black and brown, 57 to 36 Catholics, 6 to 34 smaller towns, 56 to 39 big towns, 52 against 41 state capitals, 52 against 42 the youngest, 53 against 39 the middle age. 53 against 38, the elders, 52 against 40, and in the Northeast, 70 against 26. While Bolsonaro wins with the richest income brackets, 62 against 31, college graduates, 50 against 42, whites, 50 against 44, evangelicals, 63 against 31, in the South, 56 against 37, North and Center West, 52 against 42. Lula basically wins with super margins with men, 49 to 45, and in Southeast, the most rich area in Brazil, where you have at least the, the most big metropolitan areas like Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, Belo Horizonte, 48 against 44. And there is a draw. For Lula. And young, for, yeah. yeah, for Lula. And there is a draw in young adults and mid-sized towns. So basically, Lula runs a broad coalition for democracy. Even the, the, the centrist politicians are backing Lula right now. Even neoliberal democratic politicians are backing Lula because of the risk of autocracy that Bolsonaro represents. And also a, a coalition for higher minimum wages and pensions, for labor rights, policies against hunger for gender and race equality, more environmental protection. So it's, it's, a, it's a coalition for less inequalities when it comes to income, gender, race, and ecological protection. While Bolsonaro runs a pro-business coalition based on the ideology of meritocracy, and he talks a lot and criticizes the pampered minorities and the poor, and also, he has a, a, the basis on, in the evangelical Protestants, the, the Christian evangelical. That's what I was going to ask you about. You know, maybe you could just say a little bit about the evangelical movement, because Brazil is traditionally a Catholic country. And then this movement came about, and we saw in 2018, wasn't it, that, that there was surprising support for Bolsonaro in that community. And I'm just wondering why it persists, if it persists, and whether or not... In your understanding, Bolsonaro's conduct of COVID, which was disastrous, did anything to you know dislodge that support? 
Well, uh, when it comes to structural changes, the evangelical were more or less like 5% of the Brazilian population in the 1980s. And nowadays, they're estimated being more or less like 30 to 35%. And it's even projected by the mid 21st century, they will be the majority of the Brazilian population. And somehow they are related with evangelists that came from the U.S., Pentecostals, evangelicals. But here in Brazil, there is a new blend with capitalist ideology that is recognized is known as the neo-Pentecostals. There is something called the, the theology of prosperity, where people expect to, to receive rewards for their faith in the success in business. And the transformation of the Brazilian labor market from a massive manufacturing industry to an economy based on services and commodity exports with many self-employed and a lot of small entrepreneurs are pretty much related with this change in, in religion allegiance. And basically, Lula, in his first term as president, was elected in 2002 with the help of conservative voters. And even the evangelical leaders supported Lula and Dilma Rousseff at least until 2015. But there has been a big shift in political allegiance of these evangelical leaders towards Bolsonaro after 2015. And it was pretty much, it was gaining steam because of the resistance against some social changes and perceived reform threats. And of course, the new cultural landscape in Brazil has been gaining steam and resistance against gun control, against bills legalizing abortion rights that were shelved in 2005, resistance even against measures against domestic violence, and also resistance against bills to criminalize homophobia in 2006. And basically, the Lula coalition, the social administration, shelved these proposals. But in 2009, the addition of the National Program of Human Rights had those goals, consider abortion as a public health issue. So given right for abortion with access to health services, public health services, and bills supporting civil unions between people of same-sex, same-sex marriage, and actions to guarantee the right to adoption for same-sex couples. Basically, it didn't pass through the legislature, but the Supreme Court tended to to approve same-sex civil unions in 2011 and also support abortion in case of fetal anencephaly, at least, and also authorize also gay couples to adopt kids, right? But basically, it happened through the judiciary branch and not through the legislature. Right. Right? You know, just thinking about that, prior to the pandemic, the only thing to talk about in Brazil was the car wash scandal and corruption. And then Lula was jailed, but that was overturned. It was clearly, you know, a maneuver to keep him out of the election so that he wouldn't win. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering in this election, if you 
think that the right somehow managed to tie Lula to the car wash operation and somehow Bolsonaro is not seen as part of that kind of corruption. Is that that's a perception. Is that right? But Susie, much less in 2018, because Bolsonaro is pretty much related, connected with corruption scandals, especially his sons. Yeah. So it's much less important than it was in 2018. So the coalition that is supporting Bolsonaro is a pro-business coalition, especially small and mid-sized business owners because they have a very important wage bill. They, they have to contract a lot of labor, don't use machines, especially in the, the civil sector. And also there is a resistance against Lula's policies for raising the minimum wages or raising welfare, easy pens, monetary transfers like the Bolsa Familia, the, the family allowance, because they see as being taxed for the benefits that the people that are inferior than themselves, so they think, are receiving from the state, right? And there's not, not exactly something like a welfare queen in Brazil, but there is a lot of prejudice against welfare recipients in Brazil, especially the family allowance. And also in 2008, 2012, the Lula uh, the administration backed the racial quotas in public higher education. And the public higher education was a privilege for high income brackets and mostly whites. Hmm. And so half the enrollments should have to be made from students from public schools according to the ethnic composition of the population. On the other hand, by 2012, Brazilian was getting into an economic crisis or at least a deceleration related pretty much with the global crisis that Robert Bremen has analyzed so very well. So you have much more competition for jobs that required college degrees with much less job opportunities open for this greater demand for these jobs. And on the other hand, the 2000 Rousseff also backed a law giving equal rights for domestic servants with opposition from only one representative, Bolsonaro, right? Wow. And in Brazil, that is historically very important because professionals or people who have middle class or high middle class jobs don't have to make domestic activities. So they pay domestic servants for the reproductive labor that has to be done in the houses. And so equal rights for these domestic servants meant a higher cost and many people could not hire any longer domestic servants. So the, the increasing minimum wages have brought conflict inside workers, between workers who are specialized in non-manual labor and professionals and less qualified and less educated workers specialized in menial jobs and, and manual labor. Without that, you can understand that the popular base of support for Bolsonaro. It's not only uh, something related with the, the resistance against the changing social mores and sexual behavior or gender troubles, but also something pretty much related with intra-work 
conflict re regarding the importance that minimum wages have for profit margins of small firms, but also the possibility of middle-class people to hire domestic servants. Wow, that's really revealing. So, and it also, you know, is not so different from other places in the world in terms of this. And it's so, in a sense, you're saying, Pedro Paolo, that Bolsonaro came to represent small businessmen and part of the religious sector on the social wedge issues, but also very much divided the kind of professional class, let's say, and business class that would normally go toward Lula, but were pinched because now minimum wage was too costly for them or they just didn't want to pay it for their servants. And that really let does... Me give you, let me give you a data, Susie. Yeah. A French scholar, Mark Morgan, called this the squeezed middle class. Mm. And he, he estimated that basically the poorer income bracket had an increase in income between 2002 and 2014, the period of the two Lula mandates and the, the first... Rousseff mandates of 50%. The, the bottom 50% of the Brazilian population have an income increase of 30%. And from the, the 70 percentile to the 99 percentile, it was below average. And from 85 percentile to 95 percentile, none at all. No increase at all, right? So there is a middle class was squeezed because it paid much more taxes proportionally compared with the poor, but also with the rich, because the rich here don't, don't pay taxes regarding distribution of profits, right? So I think this is very much revealing of the dynamics of social conflict in Brazil that makes this discussion about corruption also so important because, of course, this middle class think that they fund the state and basically corrupt politicians are buying with their money people who are not working or are living with welfare benefits without making too much effort to, to live on their own effort, right? And it pretty much relates with the ideology of these evangelical churches also, right? Mm. Because the capitalist ideology of meritocracy, but with a tinge of evangelical doctrine. How much did COVID and, let's say, the destruction of the Amazon and, and the environmental catastrophe in the world have to do with this election, or did it? Well, Susie, I think COVID was pretty much important in order to uh, make Bolsonaro lose the support that he have with part of this middle class, especially the centrists middle class, I mean, people who really believe science and have college degrees and consider that Bolsonaro is a denialist and <laughs> is always peddling conspiracy theories. Of course, many people also have their relatives dying or very ill because of COVID. But on the other hand, Bolsonaro said that the problem was that those responsible, the states that were responsible with public health policies, didn't consider its economic impact. And so he tried to uh, transfer responsibility for the economic crisis to the states, 
even though he could have spent much more with emergency authorization for public fiscal deficits, and he used it a lot in order to, to try to regain popularity with part of the poor, with this Auxilio Brasil that I, I mentioned before, but he didn't conduct counter-cyclical policy related with increasing public investment, for instance, in, in, in health installations, schools, universities, transport, infrastructure, etc. So Bolsonaro is incredible, but the 40 cities that had more debt in proportion of the population, Bolsonaro won in 38 of them. Of course, most of these cities had already voted for Bolsonaro in 2018, but it means that he didn't lose much votes in these, these places despite the pandemic. When it comes to the, the, the deforestation arc, basically the north and the west, the Midwest of, of Brazil, the, the agricultural areas, are booming, absolutely mm-hmm. booming because of demand comes from Asia and also the, the higher food prices related to Russia invasion in, in Ukraine. Right. And so, so they have also economic interests related with Bolsonaro because Bolsonaro gives free reign, does not supervise at all. The environmental protection in the Amazon, in the Cerrado, is basically dead with Bolsonaro. So the anti-environmental agenda is pretty much important, economically speaking, to, to legal loggers, ranchers, and miners. Even though there is a contradiction because the anti-democratic talk by Bolsonaro induces international retaliation that threatens big agribusiness. So there is a division in Brazil between mid-sized and and small-sized agribusiness and big agribusiness. Those are pretty much has international international connections, much more resistance to anti-democratic talk of Bolsonaro. This is all amazing, Pedro Paulo, but in the time remaining, I'd like to move toward your ideas about what's going to happen in the second round. You sent me a couple of your conclusions that all look really interesting, not just because it's assumed that Lula will win, but what Bolsonaro will do in response, especially here in the United States, we're going through these hearings and we're coming up to the midterm elections and we've got election deniers now in every single state of the union in terms of candidates. So I don't like to say there's strict parallels, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what you think is going to happen now on October 30th in the second round and what the reaction will be. Yeah, Susie. Well, Bolsonaro received the support from the governor-elect of Minas Gerais and the governor-defeated of Sao Paulo. And Lula received the support of the third and the fourth runner in the presidential election, Senator Simone Tebet and former Ceará governor Ciro Gomes. And the opinion polls are estimating that Lula's preference among Tebet voters is more or less like 40 against 29, 30 to Bolsonaro. And almost the same with Ciro. So if this trend keeps on going, Lula will be elected in two weeks. We are now two weeks after the first round and two weeks before the second round. So Lula is still the favorite. But as I mentioned, Lula election depends pretty much on the abstention rate of his intended voters, which is estimated as much higher than Bolsonaro's. 
And because Lula relies much more on poor votes who have moved and haven't got a new registration or who don't have money, time or motivation to vote on a Sunday. And when it comes to the strategies of campaigning, basically Bolsonaro is trying to keep the debate on public and private morality, on the distinction between right and wrong, good and bad behavior, and try to portray Lula as corrupt. But not only corrupt, even as a devil worshiper who prays <laughs> abortion and celebrates small crimes. And Lula campaigns focus on getting out the votes, in, try to ensure a high voter turnout, and he steps, he's stepping on a nostalgia vote of good old times when he was president and on promises to raise the minimum wage and welfare benefits, increase employment and education opportunities, reduce inflation and hunger. So Lula is pretty much making a campaign based on social and economic issues, while Bolsonaro is trying to conduct a cultural war. Of course, Lula is also reacting to Bolsonaro's smearing campaign, trying to increase the rejection. Remember his cruel handling of the pandemic, the case of the corruption scandal with his family, and mentioning Bolsonaro, even mentioning Bolsonaro's visit to the Freemasonry, because here it's regarded among the evangelical community as a devil worshiper institution. Well, I think that the most probable estimate is that, of course, the election is election, election is open, but Lula is still the, the favorite. If Bolsonaro wins, we, we almost, everybody on the left is almost sure that we will not have a competitive election soon for the left, because next elections will be rigged with printed votes that Bolsonaro has mm. been peddling for a while, and no term limits for Bolsonaro. So Brazil would, might be object of international retaliation due to the transition to authoritarian regime and the first station in the Amazon. On the other hand, if Lula wins, Bolsonaro as Trump won't recognize the loss, for sure, and we will have a kind of January 6th moment with unpredictable consequences. So the military are keeping a low profile right now because of some signaling from the U.S., the Biden administration, that it would not tolerate a coup in Brazil, and also manifestos that have been written with the participation of great representatives of the Brazilian bourgeoisie. If Lula is sworn in, in January 2023, of course, the effort to rebuild democracy will be huge, and it will probably be hampered by the resistance of the same democratic new liberal forces that are nowadays in his coalition. Mm. And even more by the conservative House and Senate that resulted from the secret budget, that uh, something that Bolsonaro used to fund money to kind of buy indirectly at least votes in poorer areas, and the popularity of Bolsonarism candidates in proportional elections at least. And I think that this that resistance could only be partially overcome by a new robust wave of leftist social movements. Because, of course, we, we can't count only on Lula to save us. And what about finally, because we've practically run out of time, Pedro Paulo, and I think your conclusions are really comprehensive, but just finally, like, situate Brazil now in the leftward movement of what's of Latin American. Is it something apart or part of it, in your view? No, I think it's pretty much related because somehow 
it has a relation with the, the business cycles. Joe says that the first pink wave was deflated by the commodity export deflation around 2013. Before and along the pandemic, these right-wing regimes were pretty much uh, impacted by the economic crisis. But of course, there is a, an effort of organization also and a much more relation between movements for economic justice with cultural wars. I mean, in, in Brazil, we have nowadays, I believe, uh, a blending of fighting for redistribution and fighting for recognition, realizing that both things are different to be separated, right? And I think somehow this is happening also in Latin America. And I think Lula, if Lula wins, he would be probably a leader of these left-wing governments in the, in the region. But also Lula could be a leader of the, the global South, especially in this, this discussion of the funding that the global North countries that are responsible for climate change will have to make regarding not only financing, but also technology transfers without property rights. And Lula could be a kind of leader of the global South in the transition for a green economy worldwide, uniting global South governments and, and movements including, of course, movements from the global north related with the, the climate justice in a, in a effort, in a collective effort in order to, to make those responsible for the tragedy we are experiencing right now, make those responsible pay for the uh, mitigation transition towards a, a green economy and at least Green New Deal worldwide. Well, from your lips to the public's ear and their votes, um, we'll check in with you again, of course, after the election and perhaps even maybe a few months in when we see just what kind of a coalition Lula will establish that's assuming that, yes, he's going to win and whatever Bolsonaro does to try to prevent it will not be victorious. But we don't know. And I want to thank you for your insights. And always, Pedro Paolo, you're astute and thorough political economic analysis of every aspect of this election and, of course, the social movements and political movements in Brazil. Pedro Paulo Zaluth Bastos is my frequent go-to person when we talk about Brazil right here on this program. He's a political economist. He teaches at uh, Unicamp, which is the main university outside Sao Paulo, and he writes about the economy and politics of Brazil. And thank you so much, Pedro Paulo. We'll be checking thank back with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.